Hey everyone, I'm super excited to host Eddie and Dillocker and Parker Duckworth for the Weaviate 1.17 release podcast. Uh, these releases are always so great. It feels like such a celebration of Weaviate and the hard work of the team to bring these new features uh, into Weaviate. Uh, so today we're mainly talking about replication and hybrid search. And uh, we're also welcoming uh, Parker Duckworth for the first time on the Weaviate podcast. So we'll talk about RefDevec as well a little bit. Uh, so firstly, Parker, thank you so much for joining the Weaviate podcast. Yeah, happy to be here. Awesome. And I think this release is just so special because, uh, you know, we all got together in Italy and these it, having everyone in the semi-technologies team in the same room as uh, we're up on the whiteboard with the slides and presenting these new features. Uh, Eddie, can you tell us about uh, your experience with that? Yeah, it's absolutely crazy. So, so we're a completely remote company, but being remote doesn't mean that you can't meet up occasionally. And this is exactly what we did. So we had uh, 28, I think, uh, or, or 27 or 28 folks in, in Italy in the same room and uh, we had a demo session planned for the last day of the week to to show our progress and i think by that point it had been about a week that that i had last synced up with with parker and, and red one who were working on the, the replication and and i was just sitting there and enjoying the demo and it, i almost get a bit emotional looking at, at, at the kind of progress that we've made because i mean like Building a distributed database is, is the first for me. It's probably a first for most people that do that. <laughs> and um, seeing that come together and sort of seeing the the seed that, that we originally planted when it was a super tiny team and see the, the team grow and and come this this feature come together and it I mean it's like it's it's such a such a serious feature in the end, basically. Like when we started out thinking like, okay. Once we have replication, that is really then we're in the big league. Then we have these these high availability and failover scenarios, these kind of things. And yeah, seeing that happen, absolutely unique experience. Can absolutely recommend it. Go to Italy with your company. <laughs> yeah, it's just an absolutely incredible experience. And and yeah, at the end at the last day, uh, Parker and Redwan gave this incredible lecture about uh, replication. So uh, Parker, could you kind of take it away and uh, tell us about replication? Yeah, absolutely. So uh, when I first started at the company, we had uh, a milestone. It, it was like a, the last milestone of the roadmap, which was replication. And it seemed so far away, uh, su such a monumental task at the time, right? We didn't really have anything um, to, to support that at the time that I joined. So, you know, over time we've built towards replication, um, for example, starting with backups. Uh, first, we introduced the ability to uh, back up whatever's in your Weaviate instance, um, maybe on a single node. And then that evolved into um, distributed backups, which allows you to like back up a cluster. And all of this was working towards the ability to automatically replicate or to support replication. And finally, we were able to build on uh, the back of all the work that we had done with backups and introduce replication. So it's something that we had um, in mind the whole time throughout the planning and development of backups, we knew that we were building towards replication. And so we wanted to, yeah, just build it up incrementally until we, we got to this point. So uh, the really fun and interesting thing is that really the capstone of the replication work, uh, I guess you could say was done in Italy. So up to the point, um, up to that point, you know, we, I hadn't met anyone in the team in person, you know, I'm based in the US and uh, the rest of the core team is based um, in Europe and other other places. And so uh, getting to sit uh, specifically next to uh, Redwan, another core team member and, and work with him in person to finalize this replication um, that we wanted to build was super, super uh, interesting. And, and, and um, it just made the whole experience so great. So 
the the way that we decided to implement um, replication, uh, we first looked at, you know, the cap theorem, like what trade-offs do we want to make here? You know, do we want to prioritize consistency or availability or partition tolerance? And so after discussing um, many times with the core team and, and um, yeah, Red One and I discussing for, for a while, we um, decided to make the trade-off for partition tolerance and avail- availability, uh, similar to Cassandra. Um, the thing with, with Weaviate is that, um, it's super read heavy. So oftentimes the use case, uh, will be where, um, we'll insert like a large amount of, of data up front and maybe there'll be more inserts in the future, but we want to prioritize, uh, read, um, yeah, availability. Um, so, uh, that being said, um, we decided to follow a, uh, leaderless, um, yeah, replication algorithm. So the idea is that a uh, request will come into a cluster of WeVA nodes and uh, the node which happens to receive the request will be um, uh, promoted, I, I guess you could say, as the coordinator for that request. And so um, this coordinator uh, also considers itself one of the participant nodes or one of the um, yeah other nodes that it needs to relay like this rep- this replicated data to so um the coordinator will uh participate in like a two-phase commit with the rest of the nodes including itself so uh, a request comes in let's say a write request for um yeah a piece of data and then the coordinator receives the request and sends out um a, a broadcast basically like asking every node that is part of the replication replica set i guess you could say um to acknowledge the request has come in uh once that acknowledgement has comes comes back then um yeah the coordinator will actually send out the rest uh of the nodes the data that it needs to actually commit or write to disk so um the advantage to going with this uh leaderless um algorithm is that it's more flexible in the case of node failure we don't have like a single point of failure with like a, a leader follower um algorithm so, um, yeah, it just uh, makes things more flexible in the event of like node outages and things like that. Yeah, that's so interesting to hear about. I I love learning about these new database features in WeVA. For example, when the backups came out, I, I had so much use out of that with my research on search features because uh, as we're building out this beer benchmarks, and we're going to talk about this later with hybrid search and our evaluation uh, miracle and how we're uh, evaluating this. These bench, these uh, backups, sorry, have been so useful. In I can upload NF Corpus, Arguana, SciFact, Tricovid, <laughs> all these beer datasets, and then just back it up, restore it, run the tests, and then you know we know our hybrid search performance or whatever we're evaluating them. So can can you help me understand further uh, the use cases of replication um, when when people are going to need to use it? Yeah, so the the biggest one is for reliability. So typically with replication, you want some kind of redundancy. So for example, if a node goes down, and this is uh, a Parker already said uh, that uh, from the perspective of the CAP theorem, we're um, uh, prioritizing availability and partition tolerance. And partition tolerance in a distributed cluster is basically a given. So so partition tolerance, this means in in this case means a connection to another node could go down or the node itself could go down. And like from the perspective of a node, the other node is down. It doesn't matter if it's actually down or if it just can't reach it. So kind of a, a partition tolerance is a given. And um, then availability would mean that use cases can still continue. 
And uh, the cool thing with uh, our replication is that the consistency level that the user wants is tunable. So um, some of that is going to be part of, of 1.17. Some of it is only going to be part of 1.18. So we're rolling this out in, in phases, basically, but in phases that we believe make sense. So it's not that 1.17 is like a half-finished feature, and then it's only complete in 1.18. But basically, what you get in 1.17 is, is complete and usable, and then you get new features that still fall under the umbrella of, of replication in uh, 1.18. Um, so yeah, with, with tunable consistency, you can basically say, um, how much priority do I give to the availability of reads versus uh, writes? So with 1.17, every write is replicated to all uh, nodes that participate in that particular class. So in, in uh, sort of consistency level terms, that's the, the replication level all. And then every read request that comes in, um, at least for, for searches, uh, is the with uh, done with the consistency level of one. So in other words, to write data into the cluster, all nodes need to be available. But to read data, any node could go down basically as long as you still have one. And that's that's a specific configuration. So in this kind of setup, this would work well for, um, for example, for uh, search on, a, on an e-commerce application. So you would say like, hey, products are updated only once a day. So we only need to be able to write data once every 24 hours, but users need to be able to search 24 hours. And if something goes down, they still need to be able to search. So that would be a great use case for, for the kind of uh, read with, uh, sorry, write with high consistency and read with low consistency kind of cases. But there are others. You could, for example, say, if I write with a quorum and read with a quorum, then um, you could tolerate node failures on, on both cases. Or you could say, I both write and read with very little uh, uh, consistency or minimal consistency, basically. And then um, you could tolerate a lot of node failures but also you could risk that data is out of sync. So basically you have this eventual consistency kind of aspect where you say, like, okay, for my use case, I can tolerate it if some data is not there at some point, but it needs to be there uh, later on. So this is the, the high availability kind of use case, which from my perspective is the, the most requested reason or the most the biggest motivator in, in um, replication, but there are others. So for example, what you can also do is you can use replication to scale your read throughput. So again, to stick with e-commerce, uh, Black Friday, let's say the kind of traffic that you expect on, on Black Friday is five times the kind of traffic that you would expect uh, during, during a regular day or regular week. You don't want to provision your cluster for that peak load that you have one day of the year. You want to have your cluster sized appropriately for the rest of the, the, the year and then scale it up basically just for, for that one or two or three day period. And this is something that you can do with replication. So you could say my replication factor is three for most of the year, so I have some redundancy, but maybe now I scaled up to five or eight or 10 or 15, because then I have 15 identical replicas that could serve the traffic. And basically this, this gets linearly. So 15 nodes could serve five times the traffic that three nodes could serve. And finally, there's another one, and this is sort of um, more on the roadmap, but that's the, the multi-data center kind of replication. So for regional proximity, so you could have two places on, on Earth. So maybe I think we've used that before in HNSW graph examples, so let's stick with that. <laughs> we have uh, Frankfurt, Germany, and um, I don't know, Boston, uh, USA. So um, if you had a data center somewhere in the middle, it's kind of a bad example right now because we're in the middle of the Atlantic, but that's okay. Let's let's assume there was a data center in the Atlantic. Um, then the kind of latencies that users would get 
would be pretty much the same for the for the users in Boston and for the users in, in Frankfurt because they have the same sort of regional distance to the data center, but no one has a real good latency because no one is close to the data center. So we could say, let's move the data center to Boston, super for the Boston users, not so great for the Frankfurt users. But now with multi-DC replication, what you could also do is you could have a data center in Boston, you can have a data center in, in Frankfurt, and each of those users contacts the data center that's close to them, so they have good latencies. But then, of course, the data centers need to stay in sync as well. And this is basically the multi-data center replication. This is something that's not yet present in 1.17, also not going to be part of 1.18 yet. But it's something that the kind of architecture that we've chosen in VV8, uh, that is supported by the architecture. So this is something um, that if you want to have it, I think we have a feature request ticket for it on GitHub already. So upload it, and then we'll build it. Yeah, I love how you gave the example of kind of the um, read-write trade-offs with consistency levels when when you want to use each thing when. I think that's always a super important thing to understand. Yeah, the, the distributed systems, it's so interesting to learn about. It reminds me of our podcast. People are, you know, out for a binge on WeVA podcast. We did another podcast with Eric Bernardson on uh, running vector search in production. And it reminds me of that topic of, yeah, what it takes to, you know, scale out your e-commerce store so you can handle Black Friday. I think in general, it's so interesting. Um, so I also quickly, I want to touch on this um, this iterative release. And Eddie, and you've re recently written a very popular blog post on product engineering. I think now would be a great time to kind of touch on product engineering and your thinking around these iterative, iterative releases and the general kind of philosophy behind how you think about these things. Yeah, so so uh, for those of you who haven't heard of product engineering yet, it's kind of the, the merger of product decision and engineering decision. So it's kind of blurring the lines between Traditionally, you, you might have a product department or a product team, and then you have the engineering department, and these, these parties hate each other, and they don't talk to each other and don't collaborate. Um, and the, and product engineering, the idea is that you, you soften these boundaries and you have collaboration. So in a startup, to me, this makes a lot of sense because you have small teams, and if you have a team with like three developers, you can't afford to have a dedicated product manager and maybe a dedicated lead developer and then who's going to do the work? Basically, they have like a, a, a manager to engineer ratio that just doesn't make sense. So something that naturally involves in those kind of settings is that, yeah, you, you blur the lines and you maybe have an engineer who takes over a couple of product responsibilities, or maybe you have a product manager who have, has an engineering background and can do the, the, the kind of prototyping themselves. And um, yeah, you have easier communication, more collaboration, and have something that um, I would say... Yeah, sort of is 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 more productive and and feels more natural and, and you don't have these kind of artificial boundaries between the two. Um, for our replication release, um, I mentioned that before already. We're really really interested in the feedback that we're getting and we're really trying to to provide value early, but value but but really value like not just sort of give you something half finished. So like, hey, we went for a minimal uh, implementation so that you could have it sooner but don't use it because it's not really meant for production. And that's kind of not what we're trying to do, but instead we're trying to say like, okay, what is a combination of features that you would use or what you would need to use it in, in production? And then maybe this only works for 80% of use cases, maybe it doesn't work for the remaining 20% yet. That's fine because the remaining 20%, they'll be covered later on. But that's no reason for us to say to the, the first 80%, hey, you're, you're going to have to wait because we're only going to release it when we once we have 100% covered. So that's kind of the idea um, of doing that in, in iterations. And of course, we get the feedback. When something is out, we well, yeah, it, it gives us the ability to still 
pivot and for this to to sort of tie this back into product engineering it's super important to have that that feedback cycle and not have like artificial steps in between where someone has to relay a message from like one department to another department and in the end you have engineers that never talk to users um but it, it, it's the complete opposite basically like everyone in in uh the VV at core team or in other teams can be a member of our or not can be a member but typically is a member of our public slack so they communicate with engineers right away and then if if new ideas pop up through that we we discuss the ideas internally and it's not like well, no, the, the product manager said we're not going to do that, but it's more, way more collaborative. Yeah, incredible. And I think this is a great transition to start talking about hybrid search and our philosophy and the overall how we've developed it and so on. And so maybe let me set the stage by describing what hybrid search is. So uh, hybrid search describes combining keyword scoring methods with vector search methods. So let's, I think we're all pretty familiar with the vector search part. That's where we encode data with machine learning models, build up a vector index and search for the approximate nearest neighbors and that. But now let's kind of focus a little more on the keyword scoring methods. So sort of the foundational algorithm is TFIDF, term frequency inverse document frequency, where uh, you score some sentence like, I'm super excited to welcome Etienne and Parker uh, Duckworth to the podcast based on the kind of uniqueness of these terms in that query with how unique it is to the collection of documents that I have. So then uh, going from TFIDF to BM25, BM25 introduces this binary independence model. It's You don't count how many times the keyword's gonna appear in the document, just whether it appears or not. You similarly normalize it for the length of the document. So it's a bit of a modification to TFIDF. And it's another way of scoring these documents based on their keywords that has been uh, really successful. So then at, <laughs> we have these two uh, search algorithms. And so now with hybrid, we're combining the, the results from each of the lists. So uh, we're going to dive a little further into the rank fusion and then also say BM25 and the extension to BM25F. But I want to come back to this um, product engineering. And Eddie, and I want to ask about, I thought with this project, you did such a great job of leading the team. This was one of the projects that I've been a part of since joining Weviate, where there's been like, it's like a task force almost like this is our project. This is your responsibility. This is your responsibility. And then we've just kind of come together and it's almost finished and it's so exciting. So can you tell me about like your initial thinking around the development of the hybrid search project? Yeah, that's that's great to hear. By the way, that's that's really nice. Yeah, so so uh, for our listeners to to understand a bit sort of how we structure that internally, um, we have the core team itself, which basically builds VV8, which is kind of a lot of what we do, but by far not the the, the only thing that we do. And then uh, Connor is part of the the research team as well. So besides um, like the podcast and, and and other sort of several activities, there's also the, the the research part. And what we consider research and research that the, the term research, depending on what your background is, this can have very different definitions or it can have very different meanings. Um, but we use research in the sense that we say we've identified an opportunity somewhere, something that we will most likely want to add to Viviate. But there is some kind of a question that we need to answer first. And this question could be something as simple as, what is the best UX to, to integrate this into our APIs? Like, how would our users want to use it? Like, do we want to give the user a lot of control or do we want to maybe abstract something? So this, this could be a question. Could be a question of how are we going to build it? So especially in, in, in um, so you mentioned uh, rank fusion and, and score-based fusion. In these, these terms, this is basically something that, that you know way better than, than I do and something where we benefit so much from, from um, yeah, having these kind of, kind of collaborations within the company. Um, yeah, so, so th th this sort of how do we build it? What do we need? What do we need to figure out how to, to be able to build it? 
could be an evaluation also, something like, does this idea make sense? Like it looks good on paper, but what happens if we try it at scale? Let's try it with 10K objects, a million objects, maybe a billion objects. Does it does it scale? Does it fit into, into VV8 in that sense? And this is something where hybrid, I think early on we identified that there is an opportunity and um, said like, okay, let's let's get started. Let's see what it is. Let, let's see um, what do we need because hybrid sort of in a sense, you need the both both the building blocks for hybrid, both the BM25 search and the the um, the vector search. You need to have both. Vector search obviously is kind of what VV8 is about, so we can safely assume that we have vector search covered. BM25 is something that we gradually started building. Um, it was actually TFIDF in 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 sort of as sort of the 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 simple building block for BM25, but I think from the indexing perspective, it's actually the same, or it's like one or two parameters need to additionally be, be indexed for, for BM25. That is something that we actually had in mind in the very, very first prototype that we built. So we, we didn't have any APIs for, for TFIDF or BM25, but we had the inverted index early on. I think over, over two years ago, we, we added the inverted index to, to VB8. And it already had this, this and, and Parker, you may have come across that in the, in the code, um, whenever we put those buckets, we had like buckets for with frequency and without frequency. And the, the word frequency is, is a basically for all the text properties. We, we additionally, um, to, to indexing the word, we also index the frequency. And that was in preparation for that whole TFIDF BM25 step. So we kind of knew that it might be something that we want to add at some point. Um, but we also had to figure out like, what is, what is the real value of it? And um, if I'm 100% honest, something that, that I don't know at this moment is, will hybrid search play a role five or 10 years from now? It could easily be the case, and, and I, I don't think anyone can, can confidently answer that. It could be the case that semantic search just keeps improving so much that hybrid search basically is more of a stopgap solution at the moment to bridge a gap, and, and the gap being exact keyword match in, in out-of-domain search. Or it could be that while it still improves, hybrid search is just always going to be better because it's the the combination of two things. And this is something that, that yeah, I, I don't know and I don't think anyone really knows. It's something that I find super exciting and, and yeah, quote quote me on this five years from now and, and let's see, <laughs> let's see how it turned out. There seems to have been quite a, a bit of buzz about hybrid search in the community as well. I think in our our Slack community, I often see people requesting this feature or asking when it's going to be available or being excited when they hear that it's going to be available soon. I think, uh, yeah, it, it's all, always awesome to see people asking for things and then have it delivered. That's so cool. And I think, um, so in preparation for Weave 8 Air, Eric and I were coming up with a demo and I, I think this example of how to catch an Alaskan Pollock, <laughs> that query is a great example where you have the semantic meaning of catch, you don't mean catch a baseball, catch a cold, you mean, you know, fishing. And then Alaskan Pollock, which is a specific keyword and that, that kind of fusion. I, I think what you're saying, Edian, is very interesting about, um, you know, will the vectors be able to contain that kind of keyword centric focus in the future? And I kind of think so also, especially with like, say, the way that Colbert would re-rank with token representations. But I think in addition to that, uh, this rank fusion thing that we've been exploring will be very useful. I can imagine combining it with the where filter and uh, near text search to have this kind of boost. So, you know, say in recommendation or like you're in an e-commerce store again, uh, it's Black Friday and you go for rugs and it's like, 
you know, $2,000 for a rug, $3,000 for a rug. And so you also want to have where price is less than 300, but then you want to have like the fusion where you also show the extravagant for rugs. So you could have that kind of rank fusion. So I think that rank fusion is a core primitive of search pipelines that we've explored in this particular feature. Uh, one other thing, and then I really want to dive into Reftivec with Parker and Eddie, uh, is this um, how we've been benchmarking hybrid search. And it comes back to the backups. And I I think this is just so exciting for the development of Weaviate and our features and our connection to the science is uh, we've been uh, uploading the beer benchmarks to Weaviate and we have the NDCG, the recall scores. And I think it's just an incredible, exciting step for us. Um, so I'm kind of curious, Eddie, if I could ask this kind of uh, question about like your thoughts on sort of the beer benchmarks and just sort of these kind of like academic information retrieval metrics and how they play with feature development. Yeah. So the beer benchmark is definitely more your area of expertise than, than mine. But I think this is this is exactly what makes this so great that we we now have something quantifiable as well, as opposed to to just sort of it's it, it, benchmarks are always reflective of some sort of a scenario. So you could set up in a, a benchmark in a way to produce some kind of a result. So so let's say the benchmark is primarily keyword-based, then probably a keyword-based algorithm is going to be better on it. Let's say it doesn't care so much about um, like, yeah, specific unknown words, but it matches a domain of a semantic search-based model, then you're probably skewing it to, towards that. So, so benchmarks are... Yeah, or, or you always need like the asterisk for what what is the benchmark meant to to show. But nevertheless, I mean that's not a reason not to to use benchmarks. Like it's it's very good to to be able to objectively say okay, A is better than B. Whether that matches to A being better than B for a specific use case, that is something that that users have to see for for themselves. So that is why it's super important to me to have both approaches, like the quantifiable approach, but also the qualitative approach, where you say like okay an actual use case. And we, we have our, our customer success team who deals with the, the paid uh, cases that we have uh, for first semi. We have the open source community who sometimes share data or, or, or uh, give us some insight into what's working for them. So the mix of both to me is, is super important that we don't just make these claims of, of cherry picked examples, but that we also don't do the opposite of saying like, hey, it's nothing is cherry picked. Everything is scientific. But then the user comes in saying like, why doesn't it work for me? Yeah, it's absolutely fascinating, especially with uh, kind of coming into the trending topic of the day, uh, chat GPT. I don't mean to distract too much, but this kind of ad hoc evaluation. I did one query. I like the result. That means the system works. <laughs> yeah. And, and that goes both ways, right? Like you, you see the people saying like, hey, it's the best thing ever. I only have positive results. And you see people saying it's the worst thing ever. I only have negative examples. Yeah, exactly. And I think it's worth kind of knowing that these systems are a little different than the maybe traditional software cases where these edge case, like machine learning performance is very like long tail to like hit or miss. And uh, I think the beer benchmarks, a particular reason why I'm so excited about this particular work is uh, the diversity captured in it. It has, you know, papers about COVID-19. It has financial questions like, uh, are my personal taxes separate from my hobby income? And, and then you have like nutrition questions about like, are multivitamins a waste of money? So you have this incredible diversity, the diversity in query length. And I think we're also seeing the kind of intense, this kind of exploration is, this research is emerging as well, where you'd say, what is the intent of the search task and that kind of exploration. Um, so yeah, overall, I just couldn't be more excited about the benchmarking. I think it's such an exciting step for us. 
Uh, so I want to pivot the topics. I'm, I'm so excited to have uh, Parker, especially because he uh, was so pivotal to the development of Ref2Vec. Uh, Parker, could you start by kind of explaining what Ref2Vec is? And then I really want to dive into sort of some of the questions that we've been seeing in our community chat, like particularly clarifying, um, uh, updating uh, the references and how this kind of cascades backwards, uh, thinking around like, can we have custom aggregation functions? But but maybe if we could uh, set the stage, uh, could you tell us about uh, what Ref2Vec is? Yeah, certainly. So uh, Ref2Vec Centroid is yeah, a new module that we released uh, recently. And uh, the idea of it is, is that um, an object which is set to be vectorized, so to speak, by uh, Ref2Vec Centroid, um, a vector isn't produced by this object itself, but it's produced by like the aggregate of its references vectors. So uh, the Ref2Vec module We'll take an object and then um, grab the vectors from all of its references, all of its referenced objects, and then we'll yeah compute a centroid with that um, set of vectors to 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 find something that's yeah similar to all all of these things at once. And and so the idea is that this is really useful um, when you want to represent something um, as an aggregation of other things, right? For example, um, users. Uh, based on their likes, right? What can we what can we uh, show to a user that is something that aligns with what their their expressed interests are? And Ref2Vec Centroid is something that's that's perfect for doing something like that. Yeah, exactly. I think um, the the sort of the most obvious use case I think is the kind of bipartite graph recommendation case where you have users products. Uh, the user liked a few products, and now you represent the user with the uh, with the vector from the products, and then that's the query vector to recommend new products with. I think that really helps uh, just get the idea quickly. Um, yeah, I, I think um, I want to kind of stay on this topic of graphs and Weaviate a little more. I have sort of my story of coming to Weaviate is, um, you know, I, when I had first talked to Bobby's, we was talked about how he was really interested in the semantic web and ontologies. And then sort of shortly after we had that podcast, I went to New York to meet Laura at the Knowledge Graph conference where they're, you know, companies like Tiger Graph, Relational AI, where they have these tuples. And so I always kind of had this thinking that like Weaviate is going to have this focus on the graphs, uh, sort of opening this up and maybe Eddie, you could start. Um, can you tell me about kind of the the motivation behind this cross-reference design? Because I think it's so powerful, so under, like, I don't want to say underappreciated, but I think it's maybe not hyped enough, like this kind of design of having cross-references, the way it lets you do multi-vector, the way it lets you do multimodal. I think it's such a powerful part of the data schema design in VV8. Yeah, this this goes back a bit to the history of, of VV8 because there, there was a phase before we called ourselves or before we called VV8 a, a vector search engine um, because we, we were sort of trying to figure out like what is it that that, that VV8 can add or where it can add the, the kind of value. And at that point, um, VV8 was no database on its own yet, but VV8 was sort of thought as a layer on top of other databases. And at that point, we were actually planning on running the VV8 on top of graph databases. So we had an integration for what's called Genus Graph, um, a, a tool that I had not heard before and also kind of haven't heard of since. But I think it's it's like it's a super niche tool, super good at what it does, but also like a, like a relatively small uh, niche. And the idea of Janus Graph was that you build this itself on top of other databases. So I think at that point, and I don't know if this is still true, it was uh, Cassandra and, um, and Elasticsearch, I think, so sort of like stored the data in, in Cassandra and then um, a, a query using, using Elasticsearch. 
Um, and, and this enabled you to, yeah, sort of build this like, like super large scale graphs. And then VV8 was basically the AI layer on top of that. And, and originally the idea was, was before we started, yeah, basically accepting vectors together with, with objects to only vectorize the schema. So one of the very first use cases was you have this, these, these knowledge graphs uh, and they have different ontologies. So, so you would have a graph here and a graph there, and you kind of know that there's an overlap, but because people didn't use the exact same words, it was super difficult to, to really match. Like what is like in these two graphs, like, yeah, they do intersect, but you, you don't know how. So the original idea was to use, um, yeah, basically NLP technology, early NLP technology of the time to just figure out what the right schema is. And then at some point, Bob and I were on a call and this was super early on. I think that the team was very, very small. And we were kind of figuring out this idea, like what if we tried that same approach, not on the schema, but in the actual data? And we were both like, nah, that's that's crazy. Like we, we can't we can't do that. And and then we tried it and was like, whoa, this this works kind of well. And that was kind of the 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 step where where sort of this semantic graph ontology tool turned into a vector data vector database. So we kind of pivoted completely and 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 that was also the point when we started um I don't want to say rewrite V8, because some parts of it, like the GraphQL API, for example, still is, is modeled after after that original structure. Um, but yeah, it's, it was kind of um, sort of shifting the focus a bit. But at the same time, our early users already had graphs that they represented with VV8. So they're like, okay, well, we can't just abandon them. We can just say like, okay, VV8 now switched from sort of this semantic graph tool to a NoSQL document only search engine. And now you can't represent your graphs anymore. They're like, okay. Uh, VV8 is probably not going to become a graph database because sort of you, in, in, in architecture, it's always, it's always trade-offs and like, what do you prioritize? We said, okay, search is more important for us than, than craft traversal. So we kind of, uh, skewed the architecture towards search. So the, the HNSW index and the inverted index and the way it distributes data across nodes and these kind of things. So these are all set up for, for search, but we said, we want to keep the cross-references and the, the cross-references from an architectural perspective, they're basically just links. And, and, and of course, there's some couple of optimizations you can do when, when you resolve those those links. Um, but yeah, that's that's kind of the the history of why they're there. And um, and, and and now sort of it's it's an enabler for new use cases, basically. Yeah, that's amazing. I, I've always wondered, uh, like the vectorized class name thing now makes so much more sense to me with the context of that. And that's so interesting. Um, so I really want to dive into the technical details. Uh, Parker, could you tell us about like, because we're seeing this question about kind of people want to understand exactly how if, if they have A to B to C and they update C, uh, will it cascade back? Like that, this kind of question, uh, it seems to be something that uh, people are curious about. Yeah, absolutely. So currently the um, only way to update a, an object's reference vector uh, is by updating that object itself, the parent object, which holds the references. So let's say um, object A references object B and C and object A's uh, vector reference vector is the centroid of B and C's vectors. Uh, if B or C are updated, A's reference vector does not change. Uh, right now we don't have any sort of back channel mechanism that allows that information to to reach the object which references those vectors. And primarily uh, it was because this is our first iteration. 
Um, this is something that could be uh, very computationally heavy uh, if, for example, um, we have tons of these reference vectors around. So uh, currently, the, the only way to update uh, an object's reference vector is to update that object's set of references um, directly. So that can be done uh, either just by posting an entirely uh, new object, or right, I guess you could say putting in a new object with the same ID and a new set of reference vectors, or deleting some references from that object or updating that object's references one at a time. But basically, the only way to update an object's reference vector is to mutate that object set of references on itself, um, whereas updating one of its references directly is not going to affect that parent object's reference vector. Yeah, and that idea of the kind of, yeah, when you really chain out these graphs and there's kind of like the bipartite graph I originally designed, uh, described where you can have like multiple edges. Uh, you maybe also have it going back and forth kind of if you imagine data like that, but like multiple classes chained together. I think the aggregate functions are going to be, that's going to be something that we can really explore. And as Eddie said, in laying the future for what we can do. Um, and maybe I even want to just work this in there because I'm happy to have gone. So uh, last night I went to MIT's Learning on Graphs conference and it was firstly, yeah, it was, it was super cool to be at MIT. It's super, super smart people and just walking around, you're like, nice, I'm at MIT. But like um, seeing the research and seeing the thinking around graph neural networks, it can be so intense about this kind of thing of like what kind of problems can uh, deep learning broadly solve, sort of connecting to like the Turing machines and, uh, you know, like what problems can be solved, like NP completeness, can graph neural networks take that on? But I think there's a big middle ground but for like the just a graph convolutional network being used somewhere that's useful. And I think just this basic idea of chaining these things together, aggregating, maybe that could be the use of that. And we could similarly have a Python app for our module inference the same way we have text to vec, uh, you know, all these things. We could have that kind of container for the like PyTorch geometric library. So kind of pivoting in, I know that the graph neural network aggregation thing is a bit intense, but... Can we talk about like um, what would it take to build in like custom aggregation functions, maybe starting with just like having biasing it so that the mean centroid is um, most heavily impacted by the most recently added cross-reference? Yeah, cur currently uh, our, only, uh, our only module in the class of ref to vec is ref to vec centroid. Um, this was built purposely to be able to be easily expanded um, uh, into more more um, centroid type algorithms or more algor algorithms to to um, yeah calculate this reference vector however you want to calculate it. So uh, Weavey's module system is by design very modular, and so if we were to want to introduce something like this, um, most of the boilerplate, I guess you could say, the groundwork has already been set. So it's just a matter of coming up with the way you want to calculate these reference vectors and then um, introducing a new module which piggybacks this existing ref to vec framework that we've built within the Weavian module system to to use this new algorithm to calculate the reference vectors. So I would say um, for any reference or ref to vec centroid modules in the future, it's um, not a whole lot of work to introduce a new one. It's just a matter of like figuring out how you want to calculate these these reference vectors. Yeah, I'm just just uh, just thinking out loud um, about that that recency bias because I think, and I'm, I'm not 100 percent sure, but basically references in VV8 have a specific order. We, we we don't ever make use of the fact that they have an order, but on disk they're 
they're saved in order. So most likely we could use that fact. We don't have timestamps for for a reference. So right now we couldn't easily do say something like, okay, from one to two was a very short time difference. And then from two to three, it was a large one, but at least we know the order. So if we just want to give the most weight to the most recent one, it would probably be as simple as giving the most weight to the last element of the array. Yeah, super interesting. I think um, kind of one other thing that excites me, and yeah, that I think that the building blocks of that are in place and that will be super impactful. Just maybe staying on that a little longer. You imagine like you want to have recommendation without sort of logging in and having that long archive of user data. You want to just be able to like scroll through TikTok or whatever and like quickly have recommendations. I think that kind of thing lets you like control it with your, by giving the signal of uh, recency sort of. Um, one other thing that kind of excites me is this idea of clustering the um, the embeddings. I think that could be super powerful, especially for diverse interests. So like if you've liked these products and it's like uh, Nike shoes, Adidas shoes, Jordan shoes, I think instead of averaging it, we could have this uh, clustering and then the centroids could be used, so, which brings this topic of how might we represent centroids? Like, And I think the cross-reference thing, again, is we would use it again to do multi-vector representation and that kind of idea. So super cool. I think, um, yeah, this overall, this is 117. And thanks so much for uh, the discussion on ref to vec I'm so excited about ref to vec I think this kind of graph structure, how we can send embeddings through the graphs and aggregate them. I think a lot of people are excited about it and because I think it's exciting. But, <laughs> but anyways, thanks so much. I think, um, yeah, replication, hybrid search, and sort of the Italy 117 release, all of it. Yeah. Yeah, smooth, uh, a few few smaller improvements as well. Um, we'll we'll mention them in our release blog post. But um, a couple of uh, performance improvements regarding startup time. So uh, both for for startup times of the time that the application takes to to restart. So for example, if there was a a node failure, and this is something that with replication we have a lot more tolerance for. But even with replication, you still care about the time that the node is back because there may be a time window when when it's unavailable. So there. A lot of improvements around the the uh, yeah uh, startup time, uh, but also and and this was sort of similar uh, a, a similar cost for this. We've also improved uh, batch latencies and and there particularly sort of the the P nine 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 or or the max latency. So we had a pretty constant write speed already based on the LSM store having a, a constant write speed, but then we had like these occasional peaks and that those could lead to timeouts and then the timeout would lead to a retry and then the retry would put more load on the cluster and all these, this kind of chain of events. And we have a lot of fixes around those as well that, that we implemented in 1.17, uh, which is sort of one of these for freeme for my favorite category, like not a very exciting feature, but super exciting for those that actually operate VB8 clusters. Awesome. Well, thanks again, both so much for the for coming on the podcast and everyone, please check out WeVA uh, 1.17. And thank you so much again for listening. Awesome. Thanks, Connor.